Good afternoon to you. The time is 1 o'clock. This is WEHC Emory and WISE FM Wise. It is Wednesday, September 20th, 2023. And time now for a half an hour with Farm Talk. And here's your host, Agricultural Extension Agent for Virginia Tech, Phil Blevins. Thank you, Ivy, and good afternoon, everyone. It's good to be with you today, and uh, we're going to talk some today about vegetable gardening, but uh, this is a pre-recorded session, by the way, but we did get some questions in that we're going to try to answer first. One of those from our uh, session last week where we talked about invasive insects, and someone had sent a question in about hammerhead worms. They said they'd found a hammerhead worm, and they are an invasive species, and they were wanting to know, uh, is there any way to eradicate them? If you're not familiar with the hammerhead worm, it has a head on it like a hammerhead shark. That's how it got its name. And so they are a kind of a yellowish-brown striped body, and they can grow to be over a foot long. They in some ways resemble an earthworm, but as with a lot of invasives we have, they are native to Asia and they've been in the United States uh, for many years. Uh, you don't find them in areas where it's hot and dry, but you find those in areas where there's a lot of moist organic matter. And that's where the things that they prey on, like uh, earthworms and slugs or snails can be found. And that would be things like we'd find around our house, like leaf litter, or uh, any kind of wet mulch uh, in gardens and flower, flower beds. And they get some press because of the fact that uh, some species of it do produce a neurotoxin, and that concerns people. And they use this to uh, actually subdue their prey that they're going to eat. And so, but the likelihood of a hammerhead worm harming any people is, is very unlikely, be very low unless you happen to get it in your mouth, which I doubt very seriously you'd eat one of them, or if you get it into your eyes. And if you did do that, it could cause an irritation to the skin or mucous membranes. And if that happens, obviously call a doctor. Uh, some people worry about their pets eating hammerhead worms. If that happens, and um, keep the worm that you think they were eating on so that it can be uh, positively identified and call your veterinarian. Uh, if you have to keep the the hammerhead worm or the specimen that you think they ate, then uh, put it in a bottle and put some hand sanitizer in with it to preserve it. If you find a hammerhead worm, then what should you do? Well, if you're concerned about the exposure to it, then wear gloves if you're handling one. And don't cut up the worm. You know, sometimes we get uh, people... I get a little nervous about wildlife, and they think the hoe is the answer to everything. And so if you chop up a hammerhead worm, it can actually regenerate from the segments that you've chopped up. So you just multiplied your problem. And so if you do find one and want to have it positively identified, then put it in a container or a Ziploc bag that it can't escape. You can kill them in multiple different ways, and we won't go into all of that. But one of the ways, if you want to have it identified would be to put some hand sanitizer in the bag with it. And then wash your hands and don't rub your eyes or stick your fingers in your mouth after you've handled the worm. Uh, as far as getting rid of them, uh, that's probably not something that you really need to worry about. It would be very hard to eradicate them. Uh, they're not very common as far as that goes. And just doing a general pesticide application to get rid of them is not very wise. So deal with them on an individual basis. Some people have questions, should they report these? If they find them, no, they've been in uh, the States for many, many years. So that's really not something that, 
is a reportable insect. So I hope that helps answer that question and appreciate that question coming in. Another question, a couple of questions we have really deal with what we're talking about today. And so uh, I'll go over those questions and then give a brief answer on those, and then we'll try to get into some detail on them uh, if, as we have time today. Uh, David said, I want to create some new beds for spring planting. How should I prepare them over the next few months? Okay, so first of all, if you, if you haven't uh, built your beds, um, there's a couple of ways to do that. Uh, you can actually uh, use wood frames to build beds with, which you're going to have to go out then and, and get topsoil and fill those beds. Another way to, fill, to build beds would be to actually what we would call uh, almost like digging the, the land around the bed and, and moving it into the center so that we've elevated the area of land in the middle to have a bed. Um, those that are enclosed in wooden frames, whether it be railroad ties or treated lumber or rocks for that matter, if you wanted to lay up rocks and do it, you could do it, are more convenient for a lot of people because they don't have to bend as far, especially if you're getting older or if you have back trouble or something, some type of problem that you have physically that you can't really bend over to the ground. Having some kind of uh, frame rocks or whatever it might be is going to help with that. As far as what you could be doing in the meantime and preparing for that, one of the first things I would do is if, obviously, if you're going to build frames is get that done. Uh, if you're planning on just raising the land up by, by back shoveling or by spading or something of that nature, I would go ahead and get that done now, especially if it's sod. If you're going to go into a place where grass has been growing for any length of time, then I would get that turned over now so that sod can rot over the winter. That seems a little bit counterintuitive since we don't want to destroy organic matter, but if you want to be successful next year, you really need that sod to decompose before you get to them. If you are building a bed that you're going to have to bring topsoil in, I'd be making arrangements to get that done. I'd be finding a source of topsoil and get that in and even have it in the bed so it could settle down uh, over the next few months. And then if you need to add anything to get it up to where you need to be, uh, then you could do that later on. Uh, also, soil sample, which we will talk about just a little bit later, so I'll forego that discussion right now till we get uh, down into what we're going to talk about today. Now, one of the questions that's going to come up about some of the things that I've already said is, is it safe to use railroad ties? And is it safe to use pressure-treated lumber uh, for these beds? And yes, it is, unless you were getting fresh railroad ties that had just been treated with creosote, uh, you're, you're not likely to ever have any trouble with that if you and I don't know anybody that's in a position really to get fresh railroad ties or would want to handle those. Uh, the pressure-treated wood now is mostly treated with a copper product, and so uh, it's not a danger. Years ago, there was uh, pressure-treated wood had did have an arsenic compound that was used to uh, preserve it, but that's no longer used, so that's really not a big issue. The second question that we had, and I'll go ahead and go over that, it has several parts to it, uh, and some of those I'll answer now, and some of them will hang on till we're down in our discussion today. But when to fertilize your trees and shrubs? Should you do that in the fall or spring? Well, that's really, uh, really probably you could do it either time. It's it's more ideal though, particularly if you're putting nitrogen fertilizer down. If you were, you were using a complete fertilizer like 
10, 10, 10 or something of that nature, it's better to put those products down close to the time when the tree would actually be taking the most of it up, and that's going to be in the springtime. And kind of a rule of thumb, if, if you don't soil sample, is to put a pound of, or two pounds of 10, 10, 10 per inch diameter of the trunk. And if you were looking at a shrub, then you would try to combine the diameters of all the stems of the shrub to see what you had and spread that out basically under the drip line of the tree as evenly as you possibly can. Now, people that are in urban settings have plants that are growing close to sidewalks and plants that are growing growing close to driveways and roadways. And so it's impossible to get it all the way around the tree spread out under the drip line. And so you just have to do the best you can on that. The second question is how to handle strawberries that are not uh, producing fruit. And there could be different reasons for that. Uh, one could be over-fertilization with, uh, with nitrogen fertilizer that would cause the blooms to fall off before they actually produce a fruit. Uh, and so you'd have to uh, follow recommendations on how much nitrogen to uh, put on strawberries to get around that problem. Another one could be if it's an old matted row system that you've got that your strawberries are planted in. Those need to be renovated every year. Uh, in the fall of the, well, actually late summer, I should say, you should go in on those rows and actually till up uh, the centers of the, not where the plants were planted, uh, but the area between the rows so that you leave about an 18-inch row of strawberries. Um, because as they put out daughter plants and they'll continue to put out daughter plants over time, if you don't do that, they get to where they're just not productive and uh, weeds begin to take them over. Uh, another thing, obviously, to keep in mind is strawberries have to be pollinated. And if you don't have pollinators uh, working your strawberry patch, then maybe you need to get in touch with a beekeeper or someone that could bring some bees to help with pollination. Uh, we have a lot of beekeepers in the area. Not everyone wants to move their bees around, but you might be able to find someone that would be willing to do that. The couple other questions that are that are that we're going to deal with in just a minute is how to manage or handle your soil at the end of the season. Uh, for example, using cover crops. So let's get into that. Let's get into what we're going to talk about vegetable gardening today. And it seems like an odd time of the year to be talking about vegetable gardening as people are winding up the season. They're probably dug their potatoes and maybe getting ready to dig sweet potatoes and maybe a few crops that they still have to harvest before we get a killing frost. And it's really now is a good time to be thinking about 2024 as far as your vegetable gardening goes. And some of the things that I like to advise people about when it comes to vegetable gardening is you need to decide now what vegetables you like best. Over the years as an extension agent, I've had a number of people that have moved from a city, for example, to the area and they want to grow their own vegetables and so they plant some, some of everything. And then they find out that that's really more than they were bargaining for. Uh, they really don't want all those things. And one of the questions that comes up, especially if your face, if your, excuse me, your space is limited, is can you buy more economically than you can grow them? And someone says, well, I want to grow them. Well, you know, if you've got limited space, you can't grow everything. So uh, there's some thought needs to go into that. 
And if you are a real planner, if you're one of those people that like to have everything written down, then you probably ought to put the plan down on paper. And this is one of the things I wanted to emphasize here is you need to buy your seed early. There are lots of varieties of vegetables that people really like. And if you really like it, chances are somebody else really likes it. And so then if you wait till spring to buy those varieties, sometimes you find that the seed suppliers, the seed catalogs, et cetera, have run out of that variety. Uh, or maybe it was a sh maybe in the area where they were producing the seed, Mexico or wherever, they had a bad year. And you need to really be in early on some of those. Um, there's, there are some varieties of things that we could mention that are, that are very good. Some people like them. I mean, I've grown them, and I give them away to people, and they say, what variety is that? And they go to the garden store, and they can't find it there. And you, and you have to focus on getting the seed and doing that yourself. So, you know, one of those, for example, is Mountain Fresh Plus Tomatoes. They're a red tomato that is really a nice tomato. They, they're a, a determinant, they're a hybrid uh, type of tomato, and they're a determinant size tomato. And uh, they keep really well. They'll stay, on the, they'll stay in the kitchen or on the shelf for a good bit of time without going bad. They're not hard like some of the tomatoes you get in the wintertime in the stores. Uh, and some people ask about those. And so if you were going to buy those, you need to work on getting that seed early on in the season in the fall of the year so that when springtime comes, you don't order it. And they say that's on back order from now to eternity. And so you never get those. Uh, another thing to plan on as you're coming out of this season for the next season is plan to rotate families of crops. Even if you just have one garden spot, have a plan to rotate those families of, of different vegetables around. For example, don't, don't plant uh, squash after cucumbers and cucumbers after cantaloupes. You need to move the cucurbits to somewhere else in the garden. Don't plant potatoes after tomatoes, after eggplant, after peppers because all those are in the nightshade family. Uh, and so, and don't plant the crucifers uh, like the green crops, like broccoli or cabbage, one right after the other. And the reason for that is, is really, uh, you need to break any disease cycle possibilities that can be carried over from growing the same plant one after, the, or the same family of plant one after another in the garden. And so if you have multiple garden sites, that's the ideal thing to do is just go to another garden side and rotate. And really, you probably shouldn't plant the same family of plants more than two years in a row because you can really end up with some issues as far as disease and even insects go in that case. Um, if we think about uh, what we're going to plant and you think about economic value of things, I mentioned maybe it's cheaper to grow it uh, than it is, or to buy it than it is to grow it. Uh, you know that. You go to the store and you know what's expensive uh, and you know what you have space for. Uh, but some of those things that are uh, maybe more economical to buy for some people, especially if you can, if you preserve, uh, uh, if you try to put up your own food, uh, things like beans, uh, they're not that expensive to grow, but you know, it takes a lot of space if you have a family of any size to grow enough beans to uh, actually can and have enough to go through the winter 
obviously tomatoes are a high high value crop, but everybody wants their tomatoes. So I'm not going to recommend anybody not grow their own tomatoes. Um, it's important that, that you know that you do what you like, and that's one of those things that people seem to like. I'll tell you what we're going to do right now. We're going to take a little break right now, and then we'll be back, and we'll finish up our session. You are tuned to Farm Talk with Phil Blevins here on WEHC Emory and WISE FM Wise. Join Phil each and every Wednesday as he discusses a myriad of farming topics and answers your questions. To submit yours, email Phil at pblevins at vt.edu or give the radio station a call during the program, 276-944-6593. Okay, we're back with Farm Talk. We're talking about gardening right now. Uh, We talked about those things that are high value. Uh, There's some things, if you have limited space, that are just not a good idea to grow. Um, things like pumpkins, for example, you can plant one pumpkin plant and it takes over the whole garden spot. So, you know, keep those things in mind as well. Um, some things just take a lot of space and, uh, especially for the gentleman that asked the question about the raised beds, uh, you really have to think about what you want in that and what's really important to you if you're going to do that. Those of you that are maybe thinking about getting into gardening, maybe you don't already have a garden spot, uh, you need to think about looking for a place that really has a well-drained soil. That's ideally what we want. Sometimes we're stuck with what we have, obviously, but if we have that, we need to look for a well-drained soil. And, uh, you know, the experts recommend that it be level. I don't know where that would be in this part of the world, but uh, we most of our areas aren't level, but... Uh, And it needs to be near water. Uh, Really, uh, most crops at some point, most garden crops at some point in in the summertime are going to need irrigating. And so you need to be either near a spigot that you can use to irrigate, or you need to be near a stream if you have a large garden that you could irrigate. And it needs to be in full sun. All the vegetable crops do their best in a full sun situation. So... Uh, if you if you have a shady area, you'll just have to do the very best you can. But if you can choose a spot in full sun, I mentioned soil testing a while ago when we were talking about uh, answering one of the questions that we had regarding raised beds, and that's really the first thing you ought to do. I mean, you ought to do that right now in the fall of the year when when you're not pressed to do anything out. Go out and take a soil sample and. What you need to do in that case is get you a plastic bucket. If you plow the garden, if someone turns it with a turn and plow, you want to sample as deep as the soil is going to be worked. That's what it boils down to. If it's eight inches deep, then you need to take your sample out of the top eight inches of the soil. If you just go in and till the soil yourself, then you need to sample as deep as your tiller goes, maybe a little deeper than that, four or five inches Mix, uh, take about 12 subsamples at random throughout the garden area or the raised beds or whatever it might be, and send that to the uh, soil testing lab at Virginia Tech. We, as uh, we've said before, we have those boxes and forms in our office in Abingdon or in whatever county you're in, whether you're in another state or not, your extension office has those supplies available, and now is the time to go ahead and get that done. Uh, If you need to lime, for example, to raise the pH in the garden, that gives you a whole winter for it to start working 
and neutralizing any acidity problems that you might have. Now, as far as tilling the garden, there's lots of ways to do that. Uh, people that are really, you know, though, if, if you're into exercise, uh, spade your garden, and that means you take a shovel and turn it over a spadeful at a time. That uh, some people like that at least one year, and maybe after that they don't like it anymore. But that's one way to get it done if you don't have equipment or can't find anybody that'll do it for you. Uh, or a tiller. You know, a tiller works. They work fine. Just don't overuse the tiller because they can work on the soil structure if we uh, work them too hard. Or if you've got a, you know, a good friend that's a neighbor, owns a tractor and a plow, you can do that. You can plow in the fall or work it in the fall or the spring. I would recommend that unless it's a sod that you wait till the spring to do that, and I'll, I'll tell you why in just a minute. And then any soil amendments that you would need to add this time of the year, like lime, or if you're going to add manure, for example, uh, animal manure to, to the spot for organic matter purposes or otherwise, now would be a good time to do that. And then uh, cover crops. You know, we talk about uh, the question came up about cover crops and why, why would we be interested in uh, cover crops? And when we talk about cover crops, what we're thinking about in that case are usually small grains uh, or crimson clover or hairy vetch. And so the small grains are crops like wheat or barley or rye or um, oats. And so in our part of the world, uh, to me, the ones that seem to work the best are rye or wheat. And we can sow those on the garden fairly late. Uh, wheat or rye, you could go up to the middle to the end of October and still get a stand of it. And the reason we want to sow a cover crop is there's, there's lots of benefits to that. First of all, they can serve moisture in the soil. Uh, I said that it's better to, in my opinion, unless you have a sod that you want to rot over the wintertime, uh, it's better to wait till the spring. If we can keep something growing on the soil year-round, we really do a whole lot for soil health and soil biology. And years ago, I had a wheat experiment out, and Dr. Mark Alley at Virginia Tech told me one of the things to do was go out in December and dig those in some of those plots and see how deep uh, the roots were. And I did that, and there were already roots down as far as 18 inches in the soil uh, by the first part of December. And what's happening with that is those roots are going down and capturing excess nutrients that we've put down uh, and bringing those back up into the plant. Plus that root mass uh, that we have growing underground at that point is really going to contribute a whole lot to organic matter. Um, and, and when you add that to the mass that's above the ground, uh, then we can, we can do a lot uh, to help ourselves with organic matter. It's, it's really hard in our part of the world if you till the soil to increase the organic matter by what's growing there. If we want to increase it, we may have to add some excess like compost or animal manure or something of that nature to bring it up. But those cover crops really do a good job of capturing what's there and also of contributing to the health of the soil as well as keeping the soil in place. I said a while ago we don't have many level spots. And when you leave soil fallow over the winter or bare over the winter, where it can be subjected to really hard rainstorms that we have sometimes, we can lose some of that valuable topsoil that way. Plus, over time, 
as we don't have things growing on it like we should, we begin to lose soil structure, and that affects productivity. That affects the ability of the plant to grow, uh, the ability of the soil to have the oxygen and things that it needs in it for good plant growth. Now, I mentioned a couple of other things. I mentioned crimson clover and vetch as cover crops, and they are legumes. So legumes take nitrogen from the air and put those in the soil. Crimson clover, you probably should have already had it sown now if you really wanted a good crop of crimson clover. Uh, Vetch, it's not too late to do that. If you sow hairy vetch, which is the one we would recommend, not crown vetch, uh, keep in mind with that that it has to be inoculated with those bacteria that actually fix the nitrogen out of the air into the nodules on the roots of the plant. So cover crops are something that needs to be done now. And kind of give you an idea of what the seeding rates might be for winter time for some of these crops. If you were going to use winter wheat, uh, you're talking about about four pounds of seed per thousand square feet of area, per hundred square feet of area. I'm, I'm sorry, per hundred square feet. Uh, if you're using rye, three and a half pounds per hundred square feet. Uh, if you've never used a cover crop, one thing I would caution you about. It's when springtime comes, when we get through March and we get into April and they begin to grow, you need to do something then to get them under control. You either need to go ahead and plow the land or kill those cover crops some way because rye can go from a foot tall to four feet tall in a, in a real hurry. And that makes it difficult then to wash those things or to get those things worked back into the soil. Another couple of things I'd mention, if you are a seed saver, some people are really interested in saving seeds because they like some particular variety that they have. Uh, for example, uh, with beans, I know some people over the years uh, have liked pink tip beans, and those are hard to find, and you may be saving seed. Or you may have a tomato that you really like. And keep in mind that one of the things you need to think about if you're doing that is, is it, is, a, is it an open pollinated variety or is it a hybrid? If it's open pollinated, then generally they'll breed true. Uh, you'll get back when you grow it next year what you got the year before. If it's a hybrid, you may get some variation in that because a hybrid's a cross between at least two plants. If you want to... Uh, if you want to keep that seed, what you need to do, if you, for example, if you're at the point now where maybe you've got some tomatoes and you want to keep seed from, you need to get the, clean that seed. And actually what you should do then once you've cleaned it is, is store it in a freezer. Once it's dried out, store it in a freezer because the seed's a living thing. And if we just leave it sitting up on the shelf where it's warm, then it can die over time. But that's a good way to keep some of those varieties that you have. There are people in this part of the world that have varieties of tomatoes that they've had forever. When you think about beginning next spring with transplants, you need to plan to start those transplants far enough ahead of time to plant them uh, during the season that you want to plant them. You know, with tomatoes, it's probably going to take you six weeks or more to produce a tomato transplant. With peppers, it's going to take you longer than that. So uh, once we get past Christmas, spring comes early, so be planning for that as well. I did mention earlier that we would mention some things as far as varieties go, and I mentioned Mountain Fresh Plus, which is a variety, a hybrid variety of tomatoes that most people like really well. It was developed by Randy Gardner, 
who's originally from Carroll County, Virginia, who is a plant breeder at North Carolina State, has really done a tremendous job in bringing some excellent varieties of tomatoes to the market for commercial producers that work well for those home gardeners as well. Uh, another one that I thought I would mention, a couple of them that I thought I would mention is, I know some of you grow high-fronter beans, and there's really a nice variety that was developed down in Tennessee called Volunteer. It's kind of an improved high-fronter bean. And it is a string bean if you've never grown high-fronter, so it does have to be, you do have to get strings off when you're breaking beans. But it does a really good job. They're tender. They string well. And a lot of people like those. And then I thought I would mention on cantaloupes. I used to grow cantaloupes. And there's one that you'll find in a lot of the stores. Uh, and it's called Athena, uh, those uh, summertime cantaloupes. They're an eastern-type cantaloupe. And if you do a good job of growing those, are, they're very sweet and they keep well. And those of you that buy cantaloupes in the wintertime, the western type that come out of the western states that are meant for shipping and staying a long time, people complain they don't have a lot of flavor. Well, those eastern types, particularly Athena uh, and some of those later varieties that have been developed are really do a really good job as far as uh, providing us and presenting us with a, a good flavored, very sweet cantaloupe if we do a good job with it. We'll revisit the idea of gardening as we go on with this uh, program. If you have questions about things today or questions about things we didn't talk about today, if you could send an email to pblevins at vt.edu, I'll be glad to address those on the air. So thank you for being with us today on Farm Talk. Mark your calendar and make your plans to tune in next Wednesday at 1 o'clock for another edition of Farm Talk when Phil discusses backyard poultry right here on The Voice of Southwest Virginia, WEHC Emory and WISE FM Wise.